Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, July 24, 2016. The share ID for Friday, July 22nd is 8936. That's 8936. This morning, A Vision for You celebrates its fourth anniversary with a very special edition. Twelve testimonials as to the power, experience, and the results of the program of recovery. Many people consider the program of recovery, the 12 steps, one of the greatest miracles of the 20th century. There's no telling how many lives have been touched by the 12 steps. It enables people of all different kinds, all different types, from all different backgrounds, people who would normally not mix, to somehow come together and in spite of all the odds, experience change, transformation, like never seen anywhere else. What a miracle. Twelve simple steps which anybody can apply. Today you will hear from twelve voices, each describing in their own personal way how the individual steps have changed them. Twelve voices of recovery, weaving together twelve stories of transformation, creating a powerful message of hope and possibility. Let's get started right away with step one, Do L from New York. Good morning, and thank you, Leah. Thank you for your service. Um, good morning, everyone. My name is Do L. I'm a recovered compulsive reader from New York. And I'm grateful to be here today. I'm grateful for our fourth year anniversary of a big book meeting with a vision for you. Uh, four years ago, approximately 60 people got together in a group conscience and um, to keep the program of recovery alive, which in turn has helped hundreds, even a couple of a thousand people uh, to hear the message that has death and weight. And I'm personally grateful for step one because it has been the most important step in the program of recovery for me. Without step one being the foundation, I could not very well recover and have gone through the rest of the steps. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I was a, a low bottom case, weighed about 249 pounds, was gluttonous in every way, especially with food and alcohol, um, which were my binge foods and my binge drinks. Um, I had uh, psychological, emotional, and health problems, and my life was very, very unmanageable. Um, I belonged to a big book study prior to A Vision for You, but was not able to get the program of recovery until I came to A Vision for You and followed exactly, precisely what the program had to offer, which was first looking at the problem in the doctor's opinion. Um, it described a plan of recovery to return me to health, and what a blessing that was to discover that. It identified the problem as being um, of mind and body. And what does that mean? You know, well, the body, um, with the body, I had to be entirely abstinent. And with the mind, I had to get rid of the lies, the excuses, the justifications the rationalizations that manifested in the self-will, the control, the self-determination that always led me back to the food. So the doctor's opinion described it as 
you know, being of mind and body, and, and that my mind and my body were abnormal, and that's found on XSVI, uh, where it says, those who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe that the body and the mind of the alcoholic is quite abnormal as his mind. So, you know, the first thing I had to understand and had to come to uh, believe was that my mind and my body were abnormal. In order to recover, I had to believe that I had an insane way of thinking about my foods and an insane way of eating my foods. So it taught me that the key point that I had always missed was that I had an allergy of the body. Again, what does that mean? It meant that I had an abnormal high sensitivity, not to all foods as some might believe, but to key food ingredients that once introduced into my body cause an insatiable appetite for more of the same. Um, for example, if I'm allergic to wool uh, and I come in contact with wool, I break out in a rash. If I stay away from the wool at all costs, I will never break out in a rash. Um, but as a compulsive overeater, I could not pull that off unless I first addressed the body um, first. And it was, you know, according to the doctor's opinion, it says here that it's imperative that a man's brain be clear before he is approached. And he, he has a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. Um, why did I have to be clear of, of those binge foods? Because when I'm in my binge foods, I'm in a fog. I'm not clear in my mind to understand what this program has to offer. In other words, I'm drunk and I'm stumbling about. The doctor's opinion helped me also to see that as an allergic type or class of people, um, I can't safely use my alcohol in any form at all. And that's found on XXVIII. Um, where it says I cannot, you know, if I'm of this type, I'm not going to be like the average temper eater that can, can, you know, never occurs. It never occurs not even one time. But with me, it will always occur that I have this insatiable appetite for more of the same. So here is, um, again, helping me to see that I can't safely use alcoholic foods in any form. So I can't introduce anything that causes me to lose control over the amounts I take or not being able to stop once I start. I was, I, was, um, I was called to be entirely abstinent as a form of relief. That meant that um, I could not take out some of my binge foods or drinks and leave a small percentage and, um, that I picked up later on, right? So this is kind of like the example of being pregnant. Either you are or you aren't. You know, you can't be a quarter or half pregnant. Um, for me, that meant that I had to be 100% without these binge foods and binge drinks or alcoholic foods and alcoholic drinks that led me to more and more and more of the same. It also meant that I had to surrender control 100% to this program to give me clear-cut directions about a solution, you know, and... And so it, it brought me to the fact that, you know, I had to look at this and look at what was the solution, you know, for me. For me, the solution wasn't me. The solution wasn't with altruistic um, movements like psychiatry and, and exercise and, and diet pills and all of those things. That wasn't my solution. Why? Because when I look at my first step history, all of those things led me to unmanageability. All of those things led me to misery. All of those things led me to a life 
that I could not even stand and live with myself. So the solution, which step one, once you take it in your heart, not in your mind, because we know that the mind is faulty, led me to want to go towards the solution. You see, that's when I know that I am in step one because I'm not looking to solve the problem myself. I'm looking for something outside of myself to solve the problem. And, and the doctor's opinion doesn't really get into what the solution is. Um, the rest of step two through 12 does tell you what that solution is, um, you know, as far as addressing the mind and addressing the self. Um, and you go through that process. But there should be a change in personality. There should be a change in my emotions. There should be a change in my way of thinking and in my way and walking of life. And that is the solution that's described in the big book. And as you go through and here in this panel, you'll hear the rest of the steps as how you get the solution. But in conclusion today, I wanted to um, let you know what's been the result for me in my life. Well, today I'm at a healthy weight with 110-pound weight loss and maintaining. Um, I'm free from the obsession of the mind and the allergy of the body. And I live happy, joyous, and free, helping others to gain what I've been richly blessed with. And I want to thank God. I want to thank this program. I want to thank this meeting and all those who make this possible every day to live this way. And I hope that was helpful. With that, I pass. Thank you very much, L. Step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Rachel W. From New York. Good morning, Leah. This is Rachel W., Recovered Compulsive Reader, calling from New York. Thank you so much for your service, and um, thanks to everyone who makes this meeting happen. And um, it's just so exciting to be on the line today sharing this milestone with everyone and just to have the opportunity to express just a small amount of how this meeting has ignited my recovery to change my life. Um, step two came to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. The steps are expressed in the plural, emphasizing the fellowship of our program, and I found that it was through others that I could trust that a higher power existed and I could turn my will and my life over to that power. But what is that restoration to sanity that we're referring to? We commonly use Einstein's quote that, de that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. For me, that's the perfect explanation of step one. I think of that regarding my relapse. When I woke up each day, recommitting myself to these steps and this process, and each day within hours or minutes, finding myself back in the food. If step one is the hell of relapse, doing the same, things the same, propelled with self-will and expecting different results, then step two, coming to believe in a power greater than myself, is the way out. In order for step two to commence, I had to come to a place where I realized that my own self-will was insufficient. As it says in the big book on page 45, Lack of power, that was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves, obviously. But where and how to find this power? We don't come into this program to debate God or religions. I'm not here to enforce my opinions upon other people. At this moment, in this meeting, I'm here as a messenger, as others are messengers for me, to carry the message of faith in something other than myself that restored me to sanity and to remind you about what lives within you as well. On page 25, it says, 
if you are as seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe there is no middle-of-the-road solution. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible, and if we had passed into the region from which there is no return through human aid, we had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other to accept spiritual help. My role as a sponsor isn't to enforce my opinions about God onto other people. My role is to guide my sponsees closer to their own higher power and spiritual experience so that they can go on and give it to others. As I give them what was freely given to me, so do they give it to others. I carry my higher power with me throughout each step, but it's even more crucial now living in 10, 11, and 12. It's a daily practice to keep my higher power in place and not to push it aside with self-will. Let me give you an example. I came into program in 1999 and had periods of abstinence and relapse throughout. Ultimately, I lost 100 pounds and maintained an abstinence of almost eight years. In this process, I surrendered my food and even surrendered some defects. I expanded my higher power experience. Yet at some point, my higher power became external validation, including being admired for my weight loss and dedication to service in OA. I was sponsoring, speaking, starting meetings, and involving myself in intergroup. Just as I had surrendered to a higher power in becoming abstinent and losing weight, I edged myself back onto the higher power pedestal while on program. Ultimately, I was once again trusting infinite Rachel rather than finite God until one day in 2013, life circumstances collided into a perfect storm and food became an option again. I heard recently that emotional growth and healing can be compared to an egg. When it's cracked from the outside, it dies. When cracked from the inside, it's a sign of life. Coming to believe that a power greater than me meant I was ready for life to stop needing to crack me open to learn its lessons. With higher power fellowship in these steps, I am cracked from the inside and allow the process to nurture my life and new beginnings in my experience, spiritual experience. Thank God I discovered Vision for You in the spring of 2014 and haven't stopped listening since. It's directly through this meeting that I became abstinent. While listening to all of you, I found a way to tap into the higher power that's within me and you and nurture a spiritual experience that continues to expand each day. This may sound counterintuitive, but nothing catapults my higher power experience more than when I can admit to myself that I'm not in a situation where I fully believe in God. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm not in a situation where I fully believe in God. There are situations where my sponsor will ask, do you believe in higher power or not? And I know I have to be honest. I know I have to acknowledge that although I carry God with me throughout the day, I just bumped into a situation that's challenging my belief. Perhaps it's the result of someone picking the scab off a core childhood wound. Perhaps in that moment I forgot to say the set-aside prayer where I asked for a new experience in everything, including my relationship with my higher power. But as the book tells us, our higher power is fully experienced through the seeking, not just in the finding. On page 46, we read, as soon as we admitted the possible existence of a creative intelligence, a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, we began to be possessed with a new sense of power and direction, provided we took other simple steps. We found that God does not make too hard terms with those who seek him. To us, the realm of the spirit is broad, roomy, all-inclusive, never exclusive, or forbidding to those who earnestly seek. It is open, we believe, to all men. My step one is a crash is crashing a train into a mountain over and over again. Step two is a decision to stop, to pause, to allow the smoke to clear, to surrender to the help of other fellows while believing that a power greater than myself will help me clear the wreckage and make amends to the survivors. On page 47, we read, we needed to ask ourselves that one short question. Do I now believe, or am I even willing to believe, that a there is a power greater than myself, 
As soon as a man can say that he does believe or is willing to believe, we emphatically assure him that he is on his way. It has been reputedly proven among us that upon this simple cornerstone, a wonderfully effective spiritual structure can be built. And with that, we are ready to do that free fall into the hands of our higher power, turning our will and our lives over and clinging to our higher power as we work these steps each day. Thank you for allowing me to share, and thank you so much for this meeting. I pass. Thank you very much, Rachel W. Step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Charles H. from New York. Good morning, everybody. Um, Thank you, Leah, for your continued service. Charles H., a recovered compulsive overeater just for today. So, um... And I want to say congratulations and happy fourth anniversary um, to to uh, to a great meeting, the close study of, of the big book, of the 12 steps as it's laid out in this book. Um, I want to say that I got uh, to vision for you through the death of my brother. Um, I, I went to Miami in, um, in the beginning of 2013 and um, – and I went to an OA meeting in Miami, and I met this lady, and she gave me the phone number. And I said, okay. And I listened to it, and it sounded like a lot of chalk on the, on the chalkboard. That's what it sounded like for me. I was grieving, wasn't feeling that good, but I, I was binging, and I know that. And um, so, you know, and that brings me to my point. Um, sometimes it takes death for others to live. And, and and that's still the same thing today. It, it, it takes the, the death of self, and that brings me to this point here, that at this turning point, the monkey is off my back, but the circus is still in town. Well, you might say, well, why don't you get out of town? Well, Charles, anywhere you go, there you go. So I I, I got to say this on, on page XXX in the doctor's opinion, um, it says, uh, what does it say? Yeah, it says, the classification of alcoholics seems most difficult and, and in much detail outside the scope of this book. Here's me, though. I'm number one. They are, of course, the psychopaths who are emotionally unstable. We are all familiar with this type. They are always going on the wagons for keeps. They are over-remorseful and make many resolutions, but never a decision. That was me, you know, um, absenting a little bit and, and not going through the steps. How, how, how does the wildebeest decide to go, on the, to go in the river, a river full of crocodiles, ready to devour them, to go to the other side? That, that sounds like a question that, uh, that I used to ask, you know, trying to gather all the information before I jump on in. Um, they just, they were ready, you know, and some people, you know, the fear of, of going through with the rest of the steps, it was there. But when I just jumped in and just stepped out on faith, it worked. It really did. So, um, so it says on page 58, great, great page. Love that page. If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. Um, you know, an old-timer, because I was having problems 
you know, thinking I I was the one, not me. I had no no power. I, I had I, I got access to that power. You know, said why don't you take a look at that page, Alcoholics Anonymous, in the beginning of the book. The blank page with just the word Alcoholics Anonymous on it. Write willing to go to any lens and sign your name on it, and then and pray and meditate on page fifty eight. And just give that suggestion and, and, and be a, a, an example. You know, um, page 60 says, you know, am I convinced that my life, which was ran on self-will, excuse me, was it a success? And when I answer that question, I could truly say no. Um, there, there's, a, there, you know, there's, there's three pertinent ideas here. A, that we were alcoholics and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism and C, that God could and would if he were sought. You know, Charles, are you convinced at this point? Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, anything anything with self had to be killed. And and page 14 in in, in Bill's story explains that thing so good. It says, simple but not easy. A price had to be paid. It meant destruction of self-centeredness. I must turn all things to over to the Father of Light who presides in us all. I'm convinced that even the director needs direction. <laughs> even, the, even the principal needs direction from the superintendent. Even the superintendent needs directions. You know, I need, I need directions. And um, so that takes care of, you know, you, you, page 60, 61, 62, where, you know, I'm trying to be the director and, and pull the strings, and if the thing don't go right, you know, everything is all messed up. If everybody don't play their positions the way I want it to be played, everything is all messed up. And that's not how this thing works. Um, I'll give an example. You know, um, my family had an all-white affair deep in Jersey. I don't have a car right now. And um, I made a decision not to go. I could have went. I could have forced my will and went. But I made a decision, a conscious decision not to go because, A, um, I would have to ask a bunch of people, and my, I don't know about y'all families, but my family is kind of like, you know, kind of, you know, you know what I mean? They don't have a program, and it's okay. But I, I excluded myself from that, that, that putting myself in that position because I made a conscious decision to not put myself in that position. Now, when I, when, when I do those things, on the top of page 63, there's a lot of good things that happen. I know I think I got two or three minutes left, and I want to do this expeditiously. So, one, all sorts of remarkable things followed. Two, we had a new employer. Um, three, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. Four, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. Five, more and more we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. Six, as we felt new power flow in. Seven, we enjoyed a peace of mind. Eight, we discovered... Uh, we could face life successfully. Nine, we became conscious of his presence. Ten, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, and or the hereafter. And 11, we were born. And the prayer is just so dope. I got to say it. God, I offer myself to thee to build, me, to build with me to, and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them May may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. 
Uh, may I do thy will always. And, um, you know, and I, and I got to say this in winding down. Um, these renegade group studies is telling people you got to wait 60 days, you got to wait 90 days, you got to wait two years before you go on with a program of action. That is nonsense. That is a lie. It's not true. Um, there's places in a book that you can on your own time find where Dr. Bob and Bill W. in the vision for you said, just put them in a separate room, let them, let them, let them cool off, or let them, let them detox for a couple of days, and we get right busy. And, I, and, and this is true because I took a, a few people through the inventory process that were having problems being abstinent. They, they dried out for a few, you know, a few days, and they're on the way, right? And I, want, and I want to close down and lock down with this. And flooded with feelings, um, page 373 in, in the big book, it says, I know that I took the third step, turning my will and my life over to a higher power that night because I began writing a fourth-step inventory the next day, and I continued to write until I did the fifth step with my sponsor. Now, some of y'all ain't probably going to do that, and I'm not saying you should, but um, after, after that last part, that last sentence, on page 63, says, next we launch. And I'm going I'm to pass and leave it to the fourth-step uh, speaker. Thank you, Leah, for your service, and I pass. Thank you, Charles H. Step four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Deb W. from Oklahoma. Good morning, Leah. This is Deb W., recovered compulsive eater, Tulsa, Oklahoma. I came to OA in 1989 and became abstinent the first few meetings. Abstinent 17 years and relapsed after the tragedy in my family. It took between three to four years to get out of the compulsive obsessive eating again. Step four, the action step, has thoroughly changed my life. I was given permission to list wrongs from my point of view and how they affected me. No judgments and given to someone who will listen. This step is my inventory, no interruptions, no explanations. This is how I see it. We are gifted to have the listening ear that step five provides and ending with looking at it with our sponsor from a different perspective. By the time we get to that point, this being a spiritual process, our thoughts change. Our way of looking at things change. We realize page 15. We realized, page 52, Big Book, we were having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We were a prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We have a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. Page 49 of AA 12 and 12, all these failings generate fear, a soul sickness in its own right. Then fear, in turn, generates more character defects. Unreasonable fear that our instincts will not be satisfied drives us to covet the possession of others, to lust for sex and power, to become angry when our instinctive demands are threatened, to be envious when ambitions, when the ambitions of others seem to be realized while ours are not. We eat, drink, and grab for more of everything than we need. Fear we shall not. I turned down the wrong way. I'm sorry. Okay. 
for everything that we need, fear we shall never have enough. And with genuine alarm at the prospect of of work, we stay lazy. We loaf and procrastinate, or at best, work grudgingly and under half steam. These fears are the termites that ceaselessly devour the foundations of whatever sort of life we try to build. AA Big Book, page 52, was not a basic solution of these bedevilments more important than whether we should see newsreels of lunar flight. Of course it was. Page 64 of Big Book, being convinced that self manifested in various ways was what had defeated us, we considered its common manifestation. Resentment's the number one offender. Page 67, fear that set in motion trains of circumstance which brought us uh, misfortune we felt we didn't deserve. Page 68, and sex. We all have sex problems. We'd hardly be human if we didn't. Page 70, big book. If we have been thorough about our personal inventory, we have written down a lot. We have listed and analyzed our resentments. We have begun to comprehend their futility and their fatality. We have commenced to see their terrible destructiveness. We have begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies, for we took on them as sick people. We have listed the people we have hurt by our conduct and are willing to straighten out our past if we can. So I will now run through a personal inventory of my own as an example of step four. I had served one term on Overeaters Anonymous Board of Trustees and was going into a second term when at work, one day, like any other day, my phone rang and a woman in a neighborhood out south of town was on the other end. She was ordinarily at work. She was a juvenile counselor. My mind was unable to keep up with what she was telling me, that it was real really happening. My son, just 19, had been hiding on her porch, shaking from fear. Police were after him and another guy who had been a three-timer for robbery at the correctional facility that my son worked at. Number one rule for employees was never to speak to incarcerated if you run into them on the streets. My homeschooled, green, naive, and nerdy son, who was always looking for a friend, ran into this guy at the mall a week earlier. This criminal was one of the few prisoners who treated him with kindness, and he gave him his phone number and had been spending time with him for a week that ended with a 15-year sentence for armed robbery. I continued serving on the board, working a full-time job while not even seeming to be the same person who went to his court dates, expecting a miracle, and the miracle didn't happen. I wasn't an exception. My prayers seemed futile. I couldn't protect my son. I couldn't rewrite what he was up against, and God didn't change or pardon his mistake. I couldn't take the reality of things, the overwhelming emotions with the amount of God I had at the time, and walk through this without a crutch. So I went back to an old familiar foe, presenting himself as a friend. I started having panic attacks on the way to board meetings. I started isolating, not wanting a roommate. Everybody understood. They knew what, I was, what was going on, and they were sympathetic. Ordering french fries in my room, justifying it somehow. I told myself it was okay to have a soda. Diet, of course, even though I had abstained from it for 17 years because lots of members drank it, and they were okay. I told myself it was okay to have fruit sweet and ice cream because it was dairy-free. Besides, my weight was okay, and I had heard about members who didn't have to abstain from ice cream. I didn't catch it when I would eat 
the whole pint at one setting, and then the second one that was for tomorrow. Everybody was doing sugar-free, so I could justify it. Never considering the amount of it I was eating. It was like someone that looked like me and sounded like me was showing up every day, and the other me was having a problem with the food, anxious, afraid, crying all the time, and I couldn't put the two of them together. My life was out of control, and it showed up in the relationship with God and in the food. The food is a barometer for me to measure how my spiritual life is doing. Things didn't go my way, and God couldn't take care of me. His case was put off and promises made by the attorney every time we paid him that everything would be okay. I thought it was just a matter of time and all would be dismissed. After all, my reality wouldn't accept it any other way. When I least expected it, we went to court one day and the attorney acting kind of funny and there was a new judge and we left with them taking my son away. I was unconsolable. I turned off the phone, refused company, shut the door and ate. Deep regret and fear and anger at God set in. Anger so deep down because it wasn't acceptable to be angry with God. Was covered up by disappointment and shame in myself. How did I fail? Excuse me. How did I fall from this pedestal? And why hadn't anyone who knew me noticed the difference in me and approached me? When my prayers were gratitude and thanksgiving, my intentions were to do the right thing. How could I ever live this down? I remit. I would be remembered as the trustee who had to resign. That was not my plan. Page 417 AA Big Book, and acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I'm disturbed, it's because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact of my life, unacceptable to me, and I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or a situation as being exactly the way it's supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. Until I could accept my alcoholism or my eating disorder, my situation, I could not stay sober unless I accept life completely on life's terms. I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as on what needs to be changed in me and my attitudes. I was angry, restless, irritable, discontent, closed off from God, and miserable. I was trying to control my food. I was going to meetings, but so angry I couldn't stay through the whole meeting. The stomach came back, the butt got bigger, but I could never see that until I walked by a storefront window. Such disconnect from me and my body because I couldn't take my food, my friend foe back without symptoms. The weight was back, plus. I resented God, the court system, my son, my husband, OA, my food plan, my neighbor, my little brother, every damn one of you. The cause, I didn't get my way. What was affected? Self-esteem, check. God knew not to let that happen to me, and I swear I heard him promise it wouldn't because I have a brother who has been incarcerated since he was 17 and now he's 60-something. He wouldn't let life repeat itself. Self-esteem, I am one of the many parents whose kid got their familiar, got them familiar with the court system, uh, an experience they probably never would have had, but because of the love for their children, here they are. And the court system doesn't care that my son never did this before. It doesn't care that Debbie Wilson is a good person and doesn't deserve it. I'm just another bozo on the bus. Self-esteem, someone will find out 
and say that I didn't raise my son right and it was my fault. They wouldn't want me or any other kids around theirs. Self-esteem, if they only knew he wasn't the normal criminal, he got caught up. Security, check, financial, money I didn't have, I put up. Arguments with my husband because I didn't want him to put our house up. A court system that treated me with no respect. I had no control over the process. I was considered no different than the shabbiest lowlife I judged in the same courtroom hallway as me. Security, I've tried everything and nothing seemed to be able to work. And I didn't hear anything from God. What's up? I'm out here all alone. Ambitions, check. All the plans I had for my son, how his life would go. Now he has trouble finding a job because of the seven-day association in his life, a record. How fair is that? Personal relationships, check. A hidden secret that is kept from people I see every day, people you've told others you're close to. I forgot I never told you what happened. I'm ashamed, disappointed this happened to me, and secretly feel guilty because I want you to feel my pain. I want you to sympathize with me, but I'm afraid you'll feel sorry for me. Sex relations, gender, check. Why is it every man in my life has given up, my father, my brothers, my sons, and even my husband? I expect them to be stronger than the women in our lives. I was taught that the man is supposed to be the head of the household. What I see in my family is the woman is the one who is kept fighting. Am I afraid? Check. Afraid of the reality that I'm powerless over every facet of my life. Ability to control circumstances. Right life script for me or my children. The ability to protect them. Ability to influence them. They make their own decisions. Make their own mistakes. And afraid because I realize my limitations. Afraid because I can't connect at will to God. It's not my will, but his that brings me to him. When I choose to remain in anger and rage, my God doesn't exist in it with me. He is peace. Defects of character, selfish. Why not me? Why not my child? Why would it be okay for my son to commit a crime and not pay for it? Selfish, for wanting this one to slip through the cracks and being upset with God because it didn't. Wanted that magic outcome. I go to sleep and wake up and it's all gone. Just a bad dream. That's not life on life's terms. I'm a part of the human race and I'm in this world that has joy and pain. Self-seeking, I wanted God to fix this, my son not to have to go to prison because I didn't want to feel all the pain that went along with the experience. I wanted life as I saw it. I wanted a white picket fence and children that graduate from college and marry well and buy a nice home and have positions. That would make me a good mother, accepted, valuable, worth something, dishonest. Life unmanageable. Son was guilty whether I was willing to accept it or not. He was due justice. His sentence was less than it could have been. He served two and a half of the 15-year sentence. Consequences are not measured by intentions. The woman who was robbed doesn't care he has never done this before, that he got caught up. Dishonest. Disbelief that I lost my abstinence, that I relapsed. Denied lying to myself. Um, Justifying the secret eating each bite, dishonest, my OA program was lacking, weak. All the foods I was making okay weren't okay over the years. The allergy or the sensitivity increased, and those foods became a problem. Pride, ego, anger, resentment kept people who were trying to support me away. 
There was support. I just didn't want it. The food is not the problem, just a symptom of the problem. Working the steps reconnects me to a higher plane of living, which gives me a way of dealing with life on life's terms. Page 71, a a big book. We hope that you are convinced now that God can remove whatever self-will has blocked you off from him. I, and I believe most of us, have found step four has been a key to a new awakening a personality change, a transformation, a solution to our dilemma, to our drinking, eating, and living problems. Thank you for letting me share. Thank you, Deb W. Step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Susie K. from Maine. Good morning, Leah. Susie Kay here in Maine, Grateful Recovered, Compulsive Eater, to talk to you about Step 5. Um, just setting my timer. Um, so the first, Step 5, is located in the big book, is the first four pages of Chapter 6, Into Action. And as it's been pointed out, um, this chapter is called Into Action. It's called Not It's not called into thinking, into feeling, into stalling, into hanging back, or into keeping secrets. Um, It is called into action. Um, So the fifth step is the shedding of our defects and secrets. It's the casting out of these these, uh, portions of us. We waste no time in doing this. This is a very active step. The admitting of these defects and secrets to our higher power and to another human being is is the goal of this step. We reveal ourselves and our natures. We share patterns without shame, blame, or guilt. We 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 reveal ourselves. I think to ourselves, um, you know, in a way that um, that I have never been asked to do in the past. I find this whole program really miraculous, but the um, the nature of the fifth step to really take responsibility for um, what we, um, you know, who we are, how we function, how our brain works, for us to really come to understand that um, is um, the, the goal and kind of epicenter of this step. At the bottom of page 72, a warning is is uh, offered. If we skip this vital step, we may not overcome compulsive eating, as we say here in OA. Um, so it's really important that we do this. I, I feel blessed that I, um, though probably came into it with fear that I have gone through these steps and this particular step four times. Um, and... I suppose there might have been some balking along the way. I have a hard time sometimes getting quiet and um, to do the four-step work, but um, I'm grateful that I had sponsors who pushed me along and coached me to, um, you know, to continue actively and vigorously to complete the work so that we could sit down and do the fifth step. The first time that I um, did the fifth step, I did not... um, in the writing of the fourth step, I 
I didn't do complete work. I was not instructed to do complete work by my sponsor. I um, um, this is some years ago. I um, uh, I didn't do what we call the turnarounds, um, which are listed on page 67. They're referring to our list again, paragraph. Um, so I only looked at what um, uh, I did not look at what my part was. I used forms that were given me. I checked off a lot of boxes. I wrote in tiny spaces. And I only partially, if at all, realized the fifth step promises in the middle of page 75. Um, I really, I don't recall being delighted. I didn't, um, I, I, I don't recall walking on my sponsors, being able to look the world in the eye. Um, I wasn't at perfect peace and ease. Our, I, my fears did not fall from me, and I did not feel the nearness of my creator or um, I didn't feel that I was having a spiritual experience. I remember being kind of let down and um, kind of deflated and kind of, I probably had pretty high expectations of what it was all going to be about. And um, um, those expectations weren't met. And that can certainly be a product of my um, compulsive eating and my addictive nature, that my expectations are too high. But I remember it wasn't, wasn't what I thought it was going to be. The second time I went through, I, I read a fifth step to a sponsor. It was a different sponsor. It was much more thorough and thoughtful. I wrote um, my fourth step out longhand with paper and pen. All the answers to the questions posed in the big book in the fourth step, I wrote them all down longhand, responded to them. No check boxes this time. Um, I chose my sponsor to receive my fifth step. Um, it does discuss in, on page 74 um, what you might be looking for in somebody to read your fifth step to. Um, as we know, when the big book was written, there weren't such things as sponsors or they don't refer to them as sponsors, so they gave some ideas of who we could um, give our fifth step to. And they mentioned a doctor or a psychologist, that it could be a family member. So, um, you know, probably our wives or our husbands or our parents were not the people to um, receive this information. Um, I always offer to my sponsees that they um, may not may choose not to read me their fifth step, that they can choose whoever they like, and um, that this is a person who they who is the right person for them, somebody who's able. This is talks about it at the bottom of 74, the right person, somebody able to keep a confidence to fully understand and approve what we are driving at, and someone who will not try to change our plan. So, um, you know, this is a revealing of our secrets to another human being and to, to our higher power, and this is a very serious matter, as the chapter also talks about in this portion that we are engaged upon a life and death errand. And so it is of a profound nature. You know, we may not stop eating compulsively if we do not do this step thoroughly. And um, so I always offer that my sponsees can speak to whoever they like, that I am willing and available, um, but that, th that th this is their choice. Um, so let's see. And as 
the um, oh um, you know, and that this person should be a clo- you know a, a close-mouthed, understanding friend. And as the big book says on page seventy-four, again, we must be hard on ourselves, but always considerate of others. And that really speaks to the fact that we are really going to be looking at our part in our resentments, fears, and sexual inventory. Um, and that we we need to treat others. I think that harkens really to the sick person's prayer um, that, you know, that we are human beings and the other people involved in our resentments and fears and sex conduct are also human beings. And we should treat ourselves as a human being. We should treat them as an imperfect human being as we are. So in that second time around with my fifth step, fifth step um, I shed tears um, while my sponsor actively listened to me um, and she helped me to see my true nature, how my mind works. She did not run from the room. She stayed put. She actively listened and responded to my story. Um, to my words, helping me illuminate dark corners in my nature. Uh, at the top of page 70, bottom page 74, yeah, okay, I already went over that. Um, she did not try to change my plan. She fully understood what I was driving at, and she was able to keep my confidence. And, um, you know, this big book, these directions for, for um, attaining a spiritual life and a spiritual connection this book is uniquely written for us as addicts, and so it is um, helpful to be reading, um, to be sharing this stuff with um, someone else who is a recovered addict because they understand and they have done this step themselves. Um, the most revealing part of my fifth step was investigating my sexual conduct, and I uncovered great and profound truth about myself and my nature through looking at my pre-recovery attempts and actually my post, you know, once I was in recovery even but hadn't done the fifth step yet, my attempts to form an intimate bond with another human being. The sexual ideal resulting from my work, from this fifth step work, um, formed a foundation which has led me to have a solid and very fabulous long-term relationship with the man today, and I'm very grateful for that. So now I can say um, with great confidence that the fifth step promises have come true for me. Those are on the middle paragraph of page 75. We are delighted. Um, We can look the world in the eye. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our crater. We may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. The feeling that the food problem has disappeared will often come strongly and we feel we are on the broad highway walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. I did do a quiet review following um, the conclusion of my fifth steps and um, as I said, these promises um, um, came true for me and more promises came true as I continued in the steps. So thank you for listening. Happy birthday. Happy fourth birthday to Vision for You. Thank you to my sponsors who have helped me greatly and been those active listeners in my fifth step to the Vision for You meeting, which has changed my life, to OA, to my higher power. I'm grateful for the fifth step and all the other steps. Thank you.
Thank you, Susie Kay. Step six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Larry Kay from Illinois. Hey, Leah. Good morning. Thanks for your service. I appreciate it. Um, set my timer here. Eight minutes. All right. Here we go. Okay, Larry Kay, Recovered Compulsive Overeater. Um, before I get into step six specifically, I just want to share with you, you know, just in summing up these steps just briefly, this humble fellow um, years ago uh, shared this with me. He stole it from someone else, just like we steal most things from someone else, which is great. That's what you should be doing and pass it on. Um, and he said, he summed up the steps. Um, he said, look, it's simple, not easy. Steps one, two, and three got me right with God. Steps four through seven got me right with me, cleansing myself. Steps eight and nine got me right with you. So I go out and repair the harms which I contributed. Steps 10, 11, and 12 keep me right with God with me and with you. And, and, and these are the steps in a nutshell, he told me. He said, you know, simple but not easy. A price had to be paid. And the price wasn't putting down the food. I mean, that, that was presumed, you know. Um, but uh, the price was destruction of self-centeredness. And this was going to happen for me by forming a new relationship with a power greater than myself. Uh, I didn't know it at the time, but, uh, but that's what happened by following these steps precisely in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, that's just flat out what happened for me. So all this stuff that we inventoried in the fourth step, and, and like Susie shared, uh, uh, the fifth step, you know, it allows us to shed this stuff, stuff to spill our guts and to give away to God and to another human being in the fifth step. And it's all about to be cast out. That's what the big book says, to be cast out. We've uncovered these, these basic causes and conditions of our failure, uh, these patterns of behavior have been, that, that have been blocking me off from my creator. And just knowing that there was a source of power beyond me wasn't enough. I had to find a means to access that power. So now when we complete that fifth step, the big book is giving me some more instructions, right? It's, it's saying that, that feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly. It may come strongly. It may. And if you feel that, Great. Fantastic. That's a, that's a real nice thing. You know, a feeling of relief is a special, wonderful thing. But guess what? The obsession of the mind does not get removed until step nine leading into, into, into 10. So time for more action. You know, the, the notion of weeks or months or years of navigating through these steps is simply not uh, uh, following the program of recovery as laid out in the big book. So more action, son. That's the deal. And this brings us to six. Now, if there was one step early on in my process of recovery that was thoroughly misunderstood for me, it was six. Step six reads, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. And in the big book, all of step six can be found in the first paragraph of page 76. The first line says, if we can answer to our satisfaction, we look at step six. If we can answer what to our satisfaction? Well, the book is talking about the questions in the last paragraph of the page before this page on page 75. We heard, you know, these are the questions we ask ourselves when we take that hour of reflection after doing our fifth step. Um, have we been thorough and honest in completing the, the, the first five steps? So if I'm following the big book precisely, the sixth step is done immediately after taking that hour of quiet time from the fifth step. 
And starting with the second line on page 76, the book now makes a, a statement and then asks two simple questions. First, we have emphasized the willingness as being indispensable, which means absolutely essential. What follows is the, is the first question. So am I ready to let God remove from us all the things which we have admitted are objectionable? And here's the second question. Can he now take all of them, every one? If we still cling to something, we will not let go. We ask God to help us to be willing. Okay, so I've spilled out all these things that I find objectionable, these things that have kept me blocked off from the sunlight of the spirit. So in the last three sentences, here the book asks us two questions. And depending upon my answer, you know, what my answer is to these questions will depend upon whether I need to involve that last sentence. And according to the big book, immediately after we do our fifth step again, you have know, decision time once again. So after going over step six in the big book, we're confronted with the, you know, that question. It's, are you willing? Are you now entirely ready to have God remove your defects of character that blocked you off from your higher power? And so once again, these, these unsaleable you know, goods or shortcomings were disclosed in our, in our fourth and fifth step. And I might suggest the following. I needed to reflect on whether I was entirely ready. Am I willing to let God remove these defects? And, um, you know, if, if I believe that God, you know, the God of my own understanding is capable of now taking them, every one. So I, I need to notice in the big book that it states in the last line of the first paragraph on page 76, that if there is still a defective character that we're not willing to ask God to help us with, we pray for the willingness. That was a good suggestion for me, pray for the willingness. You know, the sixth step is not complex. Is the God of my own understanding capable of removing my defects? And now, am I willing to ask my higher power to help me with these shortcomings? And if I'm not entirely yet ready, I turn over one or more of these human failings to my higher power. I pray to ask God to help me to become willing. Now, my, my sponsor told me, Larry, if you're not willing to, to, to go to God with more, one or more of these defects, remember to pray daily for the willingness, and, and it'll come but still go on to, the, to step seven with the rest of the flaws that you are willing to let God help you with. So, you know, each step comes with a principle attached to it. With step six, that principle is willingness. And so the, the big book, again, is reminding us there's work to be done. While I don't remove my own defects of character, <clears throat> it's, it's most certainly an action step to become willing for them to be removed. And, um, you know, you might say to yourself, yeah, I really should do that. You know, shoulda, woulda, coulda. Finally, wrapping up, the, the, the way to be helpful, uh, the, the, something that was helpful to me to think about step six was uh, with God removing my defects of character was the analogy of dropping the rock. And the rock for me was, you know, I'm, here I am trying to swim you know, in life and, I, and I'm going under, flailing about, trying to save myself from this death. And eventually I was growing tired and weary. And for me, the rock was uh, anger, resentment, self-centeredness, self-pity, fear, intolerance. And it was so hard to drop this rock, you know, because the, the rock of dishonesty was, was working for me. I didn't commit suicide. I'm here on the phone with you today. Must have been working. But am I ready to get my hands off of those things and let God take them? And when I finally became willing to tear the strings off and drop that rock, it was easy to swim. And sometimes the storm blows in, the water's choppy, other times it's calm, it's beautiful out. But you know, I thought step six was about arriving at some angelic state of mind 
where I would be immune to experience in the storm. Not so. Now I know different. The big book promises me spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. So, you know, uh, 20 seconds, 1918, right? So why was I holding on to these things? I mean, what did they ever do for me? Now I can be of, of service to God and to those about me. God did this for me. I didn't do this for myself. God effectuated the spiritual transformation. I just worked some simple steps. With that, I'll pass. Thanks. Thank you, Larry Kay. Step seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Melanie C. from Oregon. Hi, good morning. My name is Melanie C. I live in Oregon, and I'm a compulsive overeater, recovered today by God's grace in this 12-step program of recovery. Happy anniversary of vision for you, and thank you. We are now moving right along on our step work, each connected to the next. Step seven, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings, defects of character. Isn't that where we all converge and try to break down the mystery of how and when and to what degree those debilitating, pesky defects of character will be removed? Spending countless hours talking about them, discussing them, how to get rid of them, how to get away from that awful feeling, begging God to remove them all, only to find that they were hanging out all over me again the very next day. So here are some ways that these CDs roll out in me, and perhaps you will recognize some of them in you, too. Have you ever found yourself instantly offended by something someone has said to you? Have you ever become disturbed by a thought that has filtered through your mind and then took that down a path of revenge to victory? Have you ever found yourself in the middle of a rash of character assassinations? Have you found yourself gossiping only to say that you were only trying to be helpful or try to explain your point? Have you ever just been annoyed or angered at the world just because? something not going my way, the plan's not going together. Have you ever just looked down to realize that you're basking in the satisfaction of just stirring? Well, an empty pot. Well, welcome to Melanie and maybe welcome to you to step seven. I had a case of the untreated, unused step seven. These examples, of course, are only a teeny tiny minor list of what is something uncountable in terms of possible disturbances for Melanie. And what are these defects of character? The big book tells me that these defects of character are resentment, selfishness, dishonesty, and fear. Things like gossip and jealousy and self-righteousness, etc., to just name a few, are manifestations of those defects of character of selfishness, dishonesty, resentfulness, and fearfulness. I had to work the steps to get to those back to those roots. And I was a mess. But I was all in. God, please take them away, every single one of them. I edged my way even to the front of the line so that I could get mine taken out. I'm out of my mind because of them. I cannot stand the way that they make me feel. I'm embarrassed by them. They make me look bad, and I cannot get what I want from using them anyway, not what I really want. So I turned to page 76 in the big book and recited the seven-step prayer. There's not too much to it. It's very short, very short. Easy breezy. My creator... I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. God, they're all yours now. They're gone. Thank you very much. Right? Not so fast, Melanie. The line that says every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness doesn't say that God will remove once and for all 
all of these character defects, any of them, all of them completely. The key word was usefulness. It may be useful. However, I do not get to act it out at all. Those that I wasn't willing to not act out on, I had to pray for them diligently for the willingness. Yet again, I'm still not to be acting out on any behavior. And there was Melanie's trouble. A misuse of this prayer request became evident in how I was approaching God. Because they did not go away, they would reappear almost immediately in full force, it seemed, at times. And I was resentful. I was resentful of the character defects. Hadn't I prayed the prayer to have them removed, after all? I was resentful of God, I suppose, because he had not done the work. It turned out that I had been using the steps just to the level of feeling better. I did not change the behavior. I had not died to self. I had not let go of self-will. I had finally learned that I had a role and a partnership with God in the endeavor of removing my key, key, uh, defects of character. Step one, taken 100%, was the beginning. My promise of a psychic change, a personality change. I needed a personality change. I first started with being clean from all substances, even trace substances, that activated the disease. Dr. Silkworth, in the doctor's opinion, calls this entire abstinence, and then started, on, started work on the steps that led, in chronological order, to step seven. When that was done, I had learned the reason that I overate. I saw the character defects, the subsequent behavior and emotions. I knew what it, that I was that I knew that I was surrendering to God. I felt my powerlessness and understood that I needed that power, greater than Melanie's quick mind, magical fantasy thinking, ego, self-reliance, and pride, and my behavior. I was dying inside, living on my own terms, my own perspective, my thinking that was going on all outside of me, the acting out, the obsessive mind, the brainstorms, the mental debates, the false swirling of playing out scenarios in my mind so quick to steal my spiritual balance and stability had me good. For hours, these defects stirred me up. For hours, I prayed to have God remove these from me. And when the trouble would leave me, I would go merrily on my way. Day after day, year after year, this would happen. No problems for Melanie, right? Something was missing. Something was still missing. And missing was my part, my part, a deeper understanding. When trouble came my way, I was stepping right back into character, self-will, and playing it out. I was continuing the behavior, maybe not full-blown as I had before, but just enough, just a trace. Remember talking about step one, 100%? That piece about entire abstinence? Well, let's move it up now. Insert step six, where that word appears again, entire Lee, again, I had not allowed the dying of self. I had not taken charge of the self-thoughts that came rushing through. The slight, subtle behaviors like body posture, tone of voice, choice of precise barbed words with hidden intentions and meaning, still sliding into my interactions with other fellows, and that will was still coming through. I had not done that kind of work. I was expecting God to do the hard labor. My part, as unbelievably painful as the process can be to gain a new perspective, is to capture and turn over to God the thoughts, the interactions, the scenarios immediately and not for one second step into them, 
stop the behavior, typically the thinking of self, the preoccupation with self, justified thinking, uh, those God-given rights of mine type thinking. Can't I say something? Can it be here? Can it be there? Am I right or am I wrong? All had to be turned over to God in behavior. My part is to remember that I am seeking a renewing of my mind. Not a small order, but absolutely critical. Therefore, as you can tell for Melanie, the work was in my mind, my thinking, and I needed help with that. I have to be clear that my normal thinking is very well the problem. Once again, all turned over to God. I pray for God to remove the defect, and I take a quick assessment of my thinking. What's going on there? Am I bathing in a bit of character assassination, feeling pretty smug? I have to stop that in its tracks. I boldly say in my mind, and sometimes I've said it out loud, stop. Sometimes a clap of my hands. I had to stop it and get to work on me. What character defect could that be and from which I now am behaving outside of my alignment with God if I continue in this sort of way of being? Gossip is just a form of anger, and it is dishonest, it's selfish, and the root of it is fear. I'm still here. I'm just lost my place. I ask God to remove these, and I talk this over with another fellow for a perspective shift. What really and truly was activated inside of me, not certainly the scenario that I was in, and I soon was able to see and humbled and grateful. I humbly seeked, uh, then at that particular point, I humbly were, was to seek out somebody else to be of service to, to fill that space that God has now opened by that process. I can see the implication of the line in the prayer now that says, every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows has shown a great deal of usefulness absolutely in these points that stays present in me sometimes. Carrying an unactivated ticking time bomb of a character defect to God was very powerful in changing my experience for me. And so it remains sometimes, that particular character defect, as long as I did the work, as long as I did my part. So it is to the, that extent that God sees its usefulness and to have it remained. It was entirely useful by not being remain, uh, removed in that particular day's march. That's my part. That's where I have my responsibility. I do not lay in wait for Easy Street. Easy Street is a fantasy and it's a made-up statement for those better able to handle it. Those are familiar words, aren't they? It does not exist anywhere for me. I had to come to grips with self these serious character flaws, flaws that had to be dealt with. I had to try with all of my will. That's the proper use of Melanie's will. I thought God would make that happen. Life uh, would be easy because God would have that happen. That would have to have no disturbances whatsoever anymore. These all would be gone because I would be set apart because God would just physically do that. Well, that's a Santa Claus sy syndrome, and that also had to be removed from the scene. When the pain got painful enough and I was so deeply stuck in self, the preoccupation with relief was my only thought, and life became unbearable. I was challenged, excuse me, I was challenged to find my part in this. The difference between Santa Claus and God, that's what I was challenged to do. A spiritual personality change, the depth of the miracle of step seven was to be mine, humbled by God's grace. The dying to the preoccupation of self, to selflessness, 
which means the absence of self, the dying to self, the self-consciousness of self. How do I look? How do I feel? What does it sound like? All had to be forgotten. God had prepped me by each one of these experiences and continues to do so. True harmony, serenity, peace of mind for God, for itself, has been replaced. A miracle of change has happened to me that I did not think was ever, ever possible. And it seems so trite, but I'm telling you, root and branch is being taken out. I really have been reborn. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Melanie C. Step eight made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Rebecca S. from Connecticut. Good morning, A Vision for You family. I am Rebecca S. from Connecticut, and I'm a compulsive overeater. Happy fourth anniversary. Thank you for inviting me to participate in the celebration, and thank you, Higher Power, for giving me the desperation, willingness, and ability to do so. In the chapter into action on page 76, the big book doesn't have all that much to say about step eight. And in fact, it lumps step eight in with step nine. All it says is, now we need more action without which we find that faith without works is dead. Let's look at steps eight and nine. We have a list of all persons we have harmed and to whom we are willing to make amends. We made it when we took our inventory. So the instructions I was given for step eight were to make a list of people I caused harm and to pull them from my fourth step inventory. The list was to have two columns. Who did I hurt and what did I do? Then I was to label them into three categories. A for easy, B for a little bit harder, and C for when hell freezes over, I'd be willing to make amends. I was told that I'd make the amends to the A's, then the B's would become A's, and the C's would become B's, and so on. So that's the nuts and bolts of it. But I knew I'd have eight minutes to share, and I wanted to make an impression on you and come up with something profound to say about step eight. So I tried to research the meaning of the phrase, faith without works is dead. I found myself trying to make heads or tails of what it means in the New Testament, and then decided to leave that to the biblical scholars, especially considering the Bible is non-conference approved literature. I found that basically the same line is elsewhere in the big book. It's in Bill's story, which is chapter one. On page 13, Bill talks about how he and Abby made a list of people Bill had hurt or toward whom he felt resentment and how Bill expressed his entire willingness to approach these individuals admitting his wrong. On page 14, Bill recollects that Abby had told him that faith without works was dead and Bill explains what this means to us addicts and how appallingly true it is. He says, for if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and love spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again, and if he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed. With us, it is just like that. And I have come to accept that 
as the truth for me, that if I were to pick up my binge foods or binge behaviors again, they will kill me. Getting back to the list, if you haven't worked the steps yet, and you, as did I, thought for a minute that we hadn't harmed anybody, think again. On page 18 in Chapter 2, there is a solution. It says, an illness of this sort engulfs all whose lives touch the sufferers. It brings misunderstanding, fierce resentment, financial insecurity, disgusted friends and employers, warped lives of blameless children, sad wives and parents. Anyone can increase the list. And then it talks about how psychiatrists, doctors, spouses, parents, and intimate friends find us impossible to persuade and unapproachable. Unlike an ex-problem drinker who obviously knows what he is talking about, we perceive that when the people who care about us the most try to express their concerns for our welfare, they are acting holier than now, that they think they, we owe them something and better pay up, that they just have access to grind with us, that they want us to suck up to them by people-pleasing them, and that they are expecting us to endure listening to them lecture to us. I certainly can identify with this. Don't you dare talk to me about my weight or what I'm eating. In the chapter on Step 8 in the AA 12 and 12 on page 78, it talks about when a real toss pot, which means a habitual drinker, calls a kettle black, and then further on, if we are now about to ask forgiveness for ourselves, why shouldn't we start by forgiving them, one and all? And then on page 80, calm, thoughtful reflection upon personal relations can deepen our insights. And on page 82, at the end it says, it is the beginning of the end of isolation from our fellows and from God. All these statements in the 12 and 12 are leading me up to telling you about a recent experience I had, which I now realize makes for a good example of step eight working in my life. I've been holding on to a harm I've done to my two kids who are now adults. Even though I've made my amends, I still carry guilt and shame about something I'd done when they were little and have been harboring this secret. A few weeks ago on a walk with some OA friends, I was telling them about a glorious day at the beach I'd just spent with my husband. It was at the beach where I grew up and I started reminiscing. I recounted an old, worn-out story of a trauma I believe I endured as a little girl when my father put me up on top of a Coke machine so I could get a good view of a circus act, and then he took off, and I was petrified. The next thing I know, I'm telling them my deep, dark secret, that when my kids were little and I was a single mother, I brought them to the circus. We were up in the nosebleed section of the Civic Center, and I had to go to the bathroom. I made the poor decision to leave them in their seats. The line for the bathroom was long, and it took an eternity. When I got back to our seats, the little one was screaming. I was so humiliated by what the people around me must have thought, so relieved 
they were still there and that I wasn't arrested and declared unfit. My poor kids may have been traumatized. Oh, my God, the light bulb went on. Now that I am working this program, these steps to the best of my ability, one day at a time, now that I am becoming more and more comfortable in my own skin and have wonderful understanding friends to talk to and reason things out, I was able to get honest with myself, God, and these other human beings. It led me to see how I did the exact same thing to my kids that I had resented my father for doing to me. Literally exact. Can you believe it? I never made the connection before. Is it odd or is it God that both took place at the circus? If that's not the toss pot calling the kettle black, maybe my dad had to go to the bathroom. All of a sudden I experienced complete forgiveness for my dad. And then the relief of being able to forgive myself washed over me. Yet this work does not give me the ability. Yes, this work does give me the ability for calm, thoughtful reflection upon personal relations that do deepen my insights and is the beginning of the end of isolation from my fellows and from God's path. Thank you, Rebecca F. Step nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. James C. from Ohio. James, star one to unmute. Oh, hi. I was talking. All right. Am I? Can you hear me? Yes. Thank you. Oh, good morning, Leah. Thank you for this opportunity. And um, please, I I feel like I'm the least qualified of anyone on this call to be speaking to such a subject. But um, here it goes. Um, you know, by the time I got to this to this step, um, I was keenly aware that I had some real problems. You know, um, the doctor's opinion t- talks about the fact that we're, uh, we're in full flight of reality, from reality, I should say, <laughs> and we're outright mental defects. And for me, I was very much the severe case of that. Um, you know, I, I lived a self-centered life. I, you know, I, I was a judge, jury, and executioner. I have a replay button. I can play an event that I'm offended in over and over again with a different outcome and depending on how I felt for the day, just envisioning something terrible happening to that person that I was offended with, not necessarily, you know, to their death or anything like that, or they'd be hospitalized, but that I would win in every situation, uh, particularly um, got past um, anyone that I was offended with. You know, I, and this amends process brought me to a place where I had to visit my core makeup. I realized that my, I could no longer trust in my motives, um, I will tell you, I, I, I've been, I've been in the, I've been with the program, I should say, with a vision for you for about 26 months, maybe, wrapped up in, in, in a nutshell. And it all began with me sitting on the calls for about a year without even speaking on the calls. I just listened, and you know, my wife basically, it wasn't that I dialed into these these calls. It, it was my wife that did, 
And the result, I got the chance to see my wife change. And as a result of my wife change, I said, you know, there's something really about this program. I got to start paying attention. I'm going to be the child or the, the dependent in this situation um, if I don't change. And I realized I needed change. Um, I heard enough to say I got a real problem. And after about a year, after oh well, maybe after about a year of listening on the calls, I finally introduced myself, and I'm on my way. And from there, you know, I got by the time I got to the um, ninth step, I will say that I was fairly disappointed in my motives. I no longer trusted my motives, my decision making, because pretty much I realized they were all figure, they were all basically defective. You have to understand. See, I tried to create excitement where there was never any excitement. I tried to create interest where there was never any interest. And for me, I was always an adventuresome kind of guy. I always wanted to create adventure, and there was really no adventure. And I tried to create those things by just making decisions that, that were overlayered with difficulties, problems, twisted, uh, twisted opinions, and, and, and the list goes on. But I will say in the big book, on the page 82, the last paragraph, it says the alcohol, an alcoholic is like a tornado uh, roaring his way through the lives of others. Hearts are broken. Sweet relationships are dead. Affections have been uprooted. Selfish, inconsiderate habits have, have kept the home in a turmoil. <laughs> we feel the man is unthinking when he says that sobriety is enough. And I want to take a pause right there. When you think about, when, you know, so often, you know, I, I think about what I did to, to get to this point. You know, uh, you know, juicing for six weeks, eight weeks at a time fasting at maximum of seven days, sometimes five days, sometimes three days at a time, thinking that those abstinence would really make a difference in my life. See, I was trying to break the yoke, break the problem through my self-decisions, my, 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 own, my own calculated plans. And if I thought I went to extremes, I figured I could get this done. Um, take a, take a three-hour three run on a hot, sunny day and fall over from heat exhaustion and um, dehydration, thinking that those experiences were going to make me a better man or a better husband. You know, (laughs) he's like a farmer who came up out of the silo of the cellar to find that his home is ruined. And to his wife, he remarked, I don't see anything the matter here. Ma ain't that grand, the wind stopped blowing. And I want to say that, you know, I, I had, I had a, a list of amends that I had to go through, and one of the most significant ones, and I would tell you the ones that I'm most grateful for, is, is the one that my wife was so understanding. My wife actually did an amends to me before I even, well, well I actually had started the program, maybe I think it was in like step three or something by the time she did it with me. But, you know, I, at least I understood the process, the value of the relationship. And I want to just read to you, one, just one paragraph in the letter that I wrote to her or how I spoke to her. I said, I, you know, I ask you to forgive me for, for the so many uh, missed opportunities to have loved you as God had intended me to. And I, I, I want to say that um, that, you know, it, it's, it's really a, a humbling experience, this, this step, step nine. We're talking about step nine. Um, it's such a humbling experience because you really don't know you know, I didn't know how anyone was going to accept me, particularly my wife, and, and saying, you know, because my wife is both my greatest support and my greatest critic. And she could have easily said, you're not sincere enough. Go, go think about this again. Or, you know, that was dumb the way you wrote that. Go, go think about that again. And I was kind of expecting some of that, but I got none of that. And what I got was acceptance. I got love. You know, and, and again, it's just a testament to the inspiration of what she was in the home 
that have brought me to the place where I'm now with you guys, um, with all of you on this call. Um, and without that, I would have never been here. I will tell you, I would have never found it. Um, you know, I, I want to say the there was one other – I have a great capacity um, to minimize. Um, you know, again, I'm living in an imaginary world. I'm living in a dream world. And I realize now I'm propping things up with, you know, um, minimizing wherever I can and maximizing things that are just molehills. But the reality of it is um, there, was, there was one particular amends that um, I didn't want to do. And my sponsor basically said, well, if you do this thing, even though, even though I told him it was a minimal thing, it was really a big thing to me. Um, I did not want to face this ex-co-worker. Um, a little bit, just a little bit of the story. When he, when he retired, I was promoted into his position at work. Um, it was a pretty responsible and significant position. It's something I've never done before. I seem to always be getting myself into those kinds of things and doing things I've never done before, like being on this call. Um, but I, when I, I recognized that the person that I was replacing, him and I have had some horrible experiences in the workplace where we didn't get along. Um, I felt much of his, much of his treatment toward me was basically discriminatory. Um, they were racial. Um, you know, and that, that has always been the underlining justification for me being the rear end or the the isolator that I've always been, uh, particularly in, in a society that, um, you know, we all have to get along and have to pretend like we're getting along. So, you know, here, here it is, a guy who I know dislikes me. I, I have made it quite clear that, he, that I disliked him, and I've had some very um, pointed discussions and blowouts with him in the office in front of clerical staff. And, you know, although that may have been not the right thing to have done, you know, I made my point, you know, and, and James, you know, when he's upset, he can, he can say what he needs to say. So even though I minimized this experience, in, in, even in my, um, in my nine-step thought-out process, I wanted to just basically say I cannot deal with this because this is just a heavy hitter for me. Um, you know, I don't really talk about this much, but I, um, when I feel discriminated against and I'm, I'm not accepted, I'm not liked, you know, and, and, and because I don't fit in with a good boy send a good old boy syndrome, that that is very troubling to me and I, I it's difficult for me to, to deal with this. Well, anyway, I as some of you may have already heard, I, I, so I began to do my my nice step in the in the process of the power of God. And I remember I was on a run. I, I was running out and I was basically I, I got to the corner of where I knew that he when he retired, he went to he went to serving at the um, or working at a golf course. And I was only about a mile away from the golf course. So I was at this corner where I could continue on in my run, or I could continue on, or I can go up to where the golf course is and deal with I'm going to save his name, but deal with the gentleman that that I'm talking about and um and face him and tell him that I need a moment to speak with him to make my amends for my part of the problem and. You know, I, I stood on this corner for actually for literally five minutes, you know, and I, and I remember just talking to God about it, just saying, you know, I'm, I'm here. And I, I know cars were driving by kind of looking at me, what's, what's wrong with this guy? He's standing on the corner. And he's, he looks kind of uh, despaired. And I, I didn't want to make more of it than what it, than it really was. But I want to say that I went ahead and I was challenged through some communication and some my discussion and prayer with God, as I know God. 
and um, I got some clear direction and some clear challenges. You know, um, you know, it, it's, you know, is is it is it really faith? Is do I really believe that He's able to do and repair and fix these things? Do I really trust Him? You know, all those things got, got brought to mind. So I went ahead and ran the mile up to the golf course, got there, and great, He wasn't there. But I asked when He was going to come to work. I got the I got the time that He was going to come to work. Um, that they expected him to tee off. He actually wasn't working. He was actually going to tee off at a certain time during the day uh, with a group of other other people. So I sat, you know, I, I found out it was about two hours away from where I was at. So anyway, I, I ran back home, got myself cleaned up, got there uh, about a half hour early and sat in the car for 30 minutes just thinking of what, of how this was going to play out, you know, thinking of how this might work out. When I saw the guy, I mean, when I saw, I'm a, okay, just his name's Don. I'm just going to use the word, the name Don. When I saw Don, I, I was like, man, there he is. So I stepped out of the car. I went over to him. I said, how you doing, Don? He recognized me immediately, and he actually was glad to see me. He acted like he was glad to see me, which is, which is something that he usually acts. He, he's a great actor as well as I am. But I got a chance to tell him that I was sorry for the relationship that we had in the workplace, that it really didn't nurture into something more positive. And I apologized for, for my part of the offenses and the conflicts that we had. And, you know, he actually received it, and I was not expecting that. And, um, you know, I walked away with that, with a breakthrough of my spiritual experience. Then I knew God as I've never known him before. You know, I will say... You know, in the big book, it says if um, it talks about, I need to turn to this page here. It's, it talks about the question of how to approach a man that we hate it will arise. Um, this is on page 77. Um, um, it, we, um, it, may, it may be less that we have done, that we have done harm and have, that it may be that we have done harm with him Although many have required a better attitude toward him, um, we are still we are stopped, we're still not um, keen about admitting our faults. Nevertheless, with a person we dislike, we take a, the bit in our teeth. It is harder to go to an enemy to, than to a friend, but we find it much more beneficial to us. We go to him with a helpful and forgiving spirit. Um, confessing our former ill feelings and expressing our regret. You know, this pretty much just really works for me. And I, I will say, you know, I, I can't say enough about what this, what this step process did. It was the beginning of what I thought, even though I was religious and even though, you know, I, I go to church and, yeah, I do things, you know, that probably, you know, I think I, I thought kind of gave me a, a bit of a pass. But nevertheless, you know, I was still self-centered. I was still Lay overlayered and, and overcomplicated with with myself as the center of my own world. I was the judge, executioner, and jury, um, the justifier and the justification of all of those things. But I want to say um, in in the big book on page 83, it talks about that if we were painstaking about this phase of our development, we would be amazed before we were halfway through. We're going to know freedom and a new happiness. We were re- we will not regret the past, nor shut the door on it. We will comprehend we will comprehend the word serenity, and we will know peace. 
no matter how far down the scale we have gone. I'm going to take a pause right there and just talk about that. You know, there's a, there's, a, there's a big difference in hearing these promises and experiencing these promises. There's a vast difference. And I'm not saying by any means that I'm perfect or, or have arrived at anything. All I'm saying is that once you begin the journey, you can, never, you can no longer look back. Once you start this process, you'll become something um, unintended by God if you go back. You are, dis- you are destined to design to move forward from here. And I, you know, I, I, there's nothing more beautiful than to say that we have seen this process with our own eyes. I haven't just, you know, I've sat on these calls for a year. I haven't just heard it now. I have seen it with my own eyes. I've heard it, and now I've seen it, and now I'm experiencing it. Yeah, I've got a long way to go, but I want to continue to read to say that, that feelings of selflessness, or usefulness rather, um, self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. The fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. But we will that but they will always materialize if we work for them. Um, you know, there's I I'm pretty much close to wrapping this one up, but um I want to say that there's something about the the notion or the word called work, and and I've learned to adopt some some principles that if, if I call those principles myself related to those things, they become a part of me. You see, I don't look at work as being work, something you work at or you go to work. I look at work as being phenomenally important, and I'm invested in the work. It's it's actually. It's actually a family member. <laughs> it's a friend. It's an opportunity. It's a, it's, it's a possibility that brings us to a state that we would have never or a place that we would have never gotten to if we just had knowledge of it. You see, there's people that have a lot of knowledge. There's people that have a lot of experience, but they don't work it. And as a result, they're not helping anyone, and they can't explain how they got to where they got to. You, I, before I started this process, I always asked God, I said, God, I want you to slap me and knock the taste out of my mouth and knock the problems out of my, my life. And, you know, I, I found out why he doesn't do that. Why doesn't he unconsciously just fix us? Because he wants us to have an experience of knowing who it is that's doing it, how we got there, and that our stories would help someone else. You know, I, I can't say enough for uh, this process Step nine is what I'm talking about. Step nine is how I realized that prior to, you know, with all my religious experiences, all my fastings and all my prayers and all that I could give and all that I thought I was having, I cannot tell you the value of what step nine does in terms of breaking the, or opening the door and breaking up the opportunities in, in ways that I could have not even imagined of how the spiritual experience fits for the rest of what we're, we're yet to do. And I know there's much more to be said here today on these calls, and I'm going to go ahead and, and, and leave. But um, thank you for this opportunity, and take care. Bye.
Thank you, James C. Step 10, continue to take personal inventory. And when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Sharon H. from Colorado. Thank you, Leah. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay. Um, I just want to thank you for the privilege to be a part of this panel today regarding what step has been the most meaningful and impact to my life the most. So I'm grateful to share on step 10, and I just want to also say, uh, wish everyone a happy fourth anniversary of the OA Vision for You phone line meeting. I'm Sharon H., Recovered Compulsive Overeater in Colorado, and by God's daily grace and practicing these 12 principles of recovery that are available to all of us, I am now living in step 10. I was privileged to listen from the beginning on July 18, 2012, when they were in the doctor's opinion. My mind was in such a fog, and I'd been living uh, in the bedevilments on page 52 that I think I'd been quoting the wrong date and saying it was July 12, uh, 2012. So anyway, that's so much of what has been released uh, and given to me this gift of daily living in step 10. Continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. And the definition of continued in my Merriam-Webster dictionary is to maintain without interruption. And the principle of step 10 is perseverance. And uh, perseverance is to persist in an undertaking in spite of difficulties. And my difficulties arise when I find myself irritable, restless, and discontent towards my fellow humans or situations. And in the big book on page 84, it says, Step 10 suggests that we continue to take personal inventory and continue to set right any new mistakes as we go along. We vigorously commence this way of living as we cleaned up the past, which were those steps four through nine. We've entered now the world of the spirit. Our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. This is not an overnight matter. It should continue for our lifetime. We continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And when these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. We discuss them with someone immediately and make amends quickly if we have harmed anyone. Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. And in the 12 and 12 on page 8, they have sort of a summary of step 10. And it says, can we stay sober and keep emotional balance under all conditions? Self-searching becomes a regular habit. Admit, accept, and patiently correct defects. Emotional hangover. When past is settled with, present challenges can be met. Varieties of inventory, anger, resentment, jealousy, envy, self-pity, hurt pride, all led to the bottle or to that first bite. Self-restraint is our first objective. Insurance against big shotism. Let's look at credits as well as debits, examination of motives. And um, God has a sense of humor because I had uh, to make an amends to my granddaughter and this is part of that daily cleanup. Um, my little great-granddaughter's birthday party was yesterday, and um, it was at this, it's called Monster Call, where they have glow-in-the-dark um, 
putt-putt golf, but also a little room where they have the party and everything. So she was supposed to have had this room for an hour and a half, and my nephew, who is a dancer and who um, Kaylee just adores because he's 16 and she just turned 7, was going to do a dance for her. Well, the party person just kept coming in and pushing and saying we needed to get going, we needed to get going, and the party started at 12 and it was only 10 to 1. And so that meant that, you know, little Angela wasn't going to be able to perform. So right away I make it my business to go up and talk to this girl and say, look, you know, this room's supposed to be available till 1.30, and we have uh, our, my uh, nephew was wanting to do a dance for all these little children. And so she said, well, you know, uh, we just like to get things moving, moving. And she goes, well, let me go get my manager. So the manager came and said, oh, no worries. Sure, that's fine. You know, go ahead. And um, so then, you know, he got to do his little routine, and then the little kids went out to play putt-putt. And it didn't even dawn on me until I got home later in the evening. And I'm um, <laughs> asking God, Lord, how did my day go? You know, was I thoughtful of everyone? Was I considerate of everyone? And I just got hit right between the eyes. And so I had to make an amends to my granddaughter. So I texted her last night, and I just said, Amber, I need to apologize and make amends for my behavior today. I was wrong. What I did was out of line and inappropriate. It was not my job to talk to the party person regarding the time that we had to have the room for. it. <clears throat> again, it is not my business, and, and it was not my call to do that. And the party was so much fun, and you made it so special for Kaylee. And please forgive me for my comments regarding your going to the concert on Friday night. God still has a lot of work to do in me. Love, Grandma. And I got a message back this morning. Oh, Grandma, I promise I wasn't upset. I just didn't understand what was going on. I hope you all had fun and can't thank you all enough for coming. So that's how I continue to clean up what I see each day that still needs the requirement of me to humble myself before God and my fellow man and do the next right thing that's in front of me. And, uh, and then in step 10 in the 12 and 12, it talks about the spiritual axiom. And it is a spiritual axiom that every time we're disturbed, no matter what the cause, there's something wrong with me. If somebody hurts us and we are sore, we are in the wrong also. But are there no exceptions to this rule? What about justifiable anger? If somebody cheats us, aren't we entitled to be mad? Can't we be properly angry with self-righteous folks? For us of AA, these are dangerous exceptions. We have found that justified anger ought to be left to those better qualified to handle it. And it's taken me a long time to understand that I do have a spiritual illness, and that illness is a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. That's why the doctor's opinion meant so much to me, because I didn't see that in regards to this particular addiction of mine and that it affects me both mentally and bodily, and it's rooted in this spiritual malady that only God in these steps can uh, make be different. And then it goes on to talk about a spot check inventory. Taken in the midst of such disturbances can be a very great help in quieting stormy emotions. Today's spot check finds its chief application to situations which arise in each day's march. The consideration of long-standing difficulties had better be 
postponed when possible to times deliberately set aside for that purpose. But the quick inventory is aimed at our daily ups and downs, especially those where people or new events throw us off balance and tempt us to make mistakes. And for me, that is my behavior when I'm out on the road. And when I'm in traffic, I still drive too fast. I do not always obey the laws of the land, and I get very annoyed with other drivers on the road. And my past comments used to be like, how slow can you go and still be moving? Or uh, if you can't drive, park it. And so God is showing me. And I mean, you know, I'm just talking. I, you know, they can't hear me. But, you know, if, if it's possible, I want to veer around them and, and uh, let them know how irritated I am. So one of the things that I've heard on this program, and it applies so much to Step 10, is God bless them and change me. And so that's what I must continue to practice every time I'm out in traffic. And the reason that I do that is my own defective character of not allowing myself enough time to get to my destination. And so that's rooted in my own defect of procrastination. And then I turn into Miss Prideful uh, Little Old Lady from Pasadena when I'm on the road. And so I'm just so grateful that God is so faithful to us as he continues to teach us how to remove these defects of character which we have and that we will continue to grow as long as I'm willing to do and practice, practice, practice set aside prayer, third step prayer, and then writing it out. And these are the ones where, you know, it takes a little longer and it won't leave my mind. And then I must surrender my anger, fear, selfish, self-seeking, and dishonest attitudes to God and follow these directions as often as I need to. I love the things that I heard early on about repeat, repeat, repeat. All actions are born out of thought, and God bless them and change me. I'm so grateful to continue each day to be the tool that God uses to renew and restore my mind and prevent me from thinking that taking a bite of my alcoholic foods would be a good idea in the moment. I call this process of when I must use the turnaround sheet my little mini fourth through ninth ten step process regarding any situation that disturbs me and continues to take up space in my mind. The purpose of step 10 is the beginning of learning how to live continually in harmony with God's new way of thinking for me, and he is teaching me to live in it one day at a time. What a gift. This reason, For this reason, um, it is required to clearly know that I have a daily reprieve contingent on my spiritual condition. And I'm so grateful for everything that I've learned as a result of these steps. And with that, I pass. Thank you. I'm on my way to church. <laughs> Thank you, Sharon H. And now, step 11, thought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Devorah S. from New Jersey. Hi, good morning, everyone. Good morning, Visions for You, and thank you, Leah. Thank you, everyone before me who's gone. I am blown away and um, so grateful to be able to be part of this program and this fellowship and, um, and to learn from everyone the willingness. Um, so the step sense 
step 11 says, sought through prayer and meditation to improve. You know, the word is improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him. Um, you know, I've been listening to everyone sharing and everyone's been talking about, you know, the prayer and the meditation and, and the, the you know, the, that God is there in all these steps with all of us. And in the prayers, there are prayers in every single step that we're doing. And this step tells us that we're praying for that um, ability to, um, to improve our conscious contact. Um, that is the whole purpose of this program, you know. Um, and, and, and when we read the step in the book on pages um, 86 and 87, how many times it's written, um, thinking, our thinking, our thinking. Our thinking has to be turned. Um, we have to learn to think a different way. And it starts with meditation, meeting God in the morning, you know, waking up in the morning and, and saying good morning to God. You know, I prided myself. You know, before program, I prided myself on all the things that I could do throughout, the, you know, while, while you know, all this multitasking things that I can do. And I still, I still can do that. Um, you know, I'll tell you, when I listen to Vision for You in the morning, how many things am I doing? I mean, you hear the, the background noise, people, you know, clanging around in their kitchen, and I heard a toilet flush, and the washing, and there's so many things going on as we're listening but this step brings me back to sitting and listening, sitting and listening to hear what God wants from me today. So, you know, it starts at night where it says, where it says, you know, when we retire at night, we constructively review our day. So I take this time at night to see, you know, what passed me by? What did I miss in step 10 that was spoke about before? What did I miss? Where was I selfish? Where do I, you know, where was I selfish, dishonest, or afraid? Do I owe an apology? Something might have gone throughout something. So I sit and I meditate and I bring myself back, you know, and I, I go through the day starting from the morning, starting from I woke up in the morning. Was there something that I missed? Do I owe an apology? Um, and I seek God's will. I, I want to hear what, you know, what is God trying to tell me? Um, at this time. And you know, what, what, what brings to mind is how do I listen to God? How do I listen? I have these points over here that I have and I want to share them with you. You know, number one, God is alive. He has always been and he will always be. Number two, God knows everything. Number three, God can do anything. Number four, God can be everywhere all at the same time. These are the important differences between God and human beings. Number six, number five, God is invisible. We cannot see him or touch him, but God is here. He is with you now. He is beside you. He surrounds you. He fills the room or the whole place where you are now. He is in you now. He is in your heart. Six, God cares very much for you. He is interested in you. He has a plan for your life. He has an answer for every need and problem you face. Seven, God will tell you all that you need to know. He will not always tell you what you want to know. Eight, God will help you do anything that he asks you to do. And nine, anyone can be in touch with God anywhere and at any time if the conditions are obeyed. And what are these conditions? I need to be quiet and still. I need to listen. I need to be honest about every thought that comes. I need to test the thoughts to be the to be sure 
that they come from a God, and I need to obey. I need to follow through. And, you know, so our thought life becomes deeper. You know, we, we come to rely on that intuition throughout the day. You know, honestly, it says on page um, 55 in the book, it says that every one of us, we had to search fearlessly, but he was there. He was much as fast as we were. We found the great reality deep down within us. In the last analysis, it is only there that he may be found. It is so with us. So God is within me, and I didn't know it because I blocked him with all the character defects and with my food and with just stuff, with all worldly clamors. I, I pushed God away, but he was there within me. And now when I do this meditation, I'm clearing away all that stuff. I'm clearing away, and I'm trying to sit and listen to hear what God wants from me. And I do it throughout the day. So we talked about it at night, you know, when, when we retire. And now, as we get up in the morning, we need to consider the next 24 hours of the day. Um, and we ask God to direct our thinking. Again, our thinking. My thinking gets me into trouble. So again, i got to take away that thinking. I have to smash that thinking. And I have to divorce myself from the self-pity, dishonesty, and self-seeking motives. I have to see what God wants me to be. What, how can I best serve him? What is his will for me today? And we may face indecision. We may not know what course to take. But again, we ask God for inspiration and intuitive thought or decision. We relax and take it easy. I love that. We relax and take it easy. That's it. I don't have to do anything else. God has my back. All I need to do is just make this conscious contact with him throughout the day and meditate. And that is the sole purpose of this program, to constantly be turning, to be looking, to look to see what God wants for me today. And whether it's saying these words, thy will be done, doing an activity and just saying, okay, God, what is it now? What do you want? Thy will be done. What is your will? It says over here on page 87, um, we are careful never to pray for our own selfish needs. Then how am I supposed to, how's God going to know what I need? <laughs> if I'm not praying for myself, how's God going to know what I need? I don't need to tell God what I need. God knows exactly what I need. I read those points to you. You know, God knows exactly, and he gives me exactly what I need. And my job is to accept it with cheerfulness and to know that this is okay. God has my back. He has not, he has not forsaken me till now. He will not forsake me today. Um, as we go through the day, we pause again. We pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought of action. Again, my thinking, you know, I have to come back. You know, my will, my self-will could run riot, and I have to get myself centered again. I have to take that pause. You know, pause, I heard it says, pray and use spiritual energy. Look to God. See what God wants me to do. And this is something, this is a job that I need to do to get out of myself all day because it's so easy for me to get lost with, with very, very busy, busy people. We are so busy, 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 thinking and doing and all that, everything. I don't have to tell you. We're very busy. But this is, the, this is the step where I turn to rely on God through an intuitive thought or action and to seek his will because I don't know what's good for me. I don't know what's good for you. 
and and I need to always. And what happens when I do that? I could relax. I could take it easy because God is doing for me what I was never able to do for myself. And I don't I become much more efficient, right? So all of a sudden, I'm able to do things that I was able, able to do. I don't tire so easily. Um, and what a privilege that is to be able to make this conscious contact. Um, I've heard that there are three kinds of prayer. Um, the first kind of prayer is a help me prayer. You know, and that's basically... When I first got into program, it was help me, God, stay abstinent. You know, please, God, let me stick to my, you know, my measured meals. Take away the um, difficulties so that I don't eat. Just, just, I just don't want to eat, God. That was my prayer for the day. That, and I meditated on that. And I just, that was what I did. And the second kind of prayer is the give me prayer. And that's the serenity prayer. And that's a beautiful prayer. You know, we ask God to give me serenity, courage, and wisdom. Um, so that I could be of service to other people. And the third prayer type of prayer is the use me prayer. God, use me. How can I be a channel to other people? And it's so beautifully written in the prayer, you know, St. Francis prayer. It says, God, make me a channel of thy peace, that where there is hatred, I may bring love. Where there is wrong, I may bring the spirit of forgiveness. Where there is discord, I may bring harmony. Where there is error, I may bring truth. Where there is doubt, I may bring faith. Where there is despair, I may bring hope. Where there are shadows, I may bring light. Where there is sadness, I may bring joy. Grant me, Lord, grant me that I may seek rather to become, I'm sorry, may seek rather to comfort than to be comforted, to understand than to be understood, to love than to be loved. For it is by self-forgetting that one finds. It is by forgiving that one is forgiven. It is by dying that one awakens to eternal life. And that's written in, in the 12 and 12 in step 11. And how beautiful that is. If I can take this guide with me in meditation and with those points that I mentioned before and to sit quietly and to block out the clamors of the world and to seek, and to seek God's purpose for me. What does God want from me? Um, I'd like to take this one minute that we can all just sit and meditate for one minute and just to get, I mean, I know this meeting has been all about seeking God and to finding God, but just to take this one minute and to fill us up with that, um, with that. And I'm going to set my timer for one minute and, um, and let's do that together. And so here we go. We're on now. Thank you. And that's, that's 
that's our time we share together in meditation. And um, how beautiful is that, that we could take this one minute together and to reach God and to seek his will for us today. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Devorah S. And step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Amy G. from Maryland. Good morning, Leah. Can you hear me okay? Yes, we can. Great. Wow, what an awesome meeting. My name is Amy G. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Maryland. Happy birthday, Vision for You. What an incredible ride it has been to be a part of this for the last four years. So happy anniversary. Boy, I've learned so much in these last hour and a half of listening to folks and so many things running through my head, but I just pray to be a message of, uh, you know, God's message here. I really, really like what Devorah had us do for just to meditate for a minute to sort of remember, you know, what's first and foremost when we read having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. You know, a lot of times I hear in meetings a a misspoken uh, 12 step where it says a result of these steps. And I truly believe it's the result for a, for a reason because it's not just one of the one of the results of the many. It's the, the main one, a spiritual awakening, a relationship with a higher power whom I now choose to call God. It is the result. You know, it's not just the result of being abstinent or it's not the result of uh, uh, maintenance in our weight or you know, being in the same clothes for years or, you know, food not calling. The result is the relationship with the higher power and everything comes after that. And if you had asked me that when I walked into my first overeaters anonymous, I would have said, no way, no how, and run in the other direction. And as a matter of fact, one of the reasons why I wanted to do uh, step 12 was because, you know, I am the one that got up in the middle of my first overeaters anonymous meeting when they mentioned God and said, forget it. I was so entrenched in my agnosticism that there was no way this program was going to work for me if it had anything to do with God. And I'm here to tell you that if I can do this program starting at that and be where I am now, anybody can do this program. It is incredible. We have a common solution that absolutely works. There's no secret code. There's no terminal uniqueness. There's no worse than anybody else. We are all just trying to get well, and these steps are the way to do it if we are the true compulsive overeaters with the physical allergy and the mental obsession has been described so well and so eloquently as we have gone through these steps. And I really like what Larry was saying about how the steps are broken down, the one through three, God, four through seven, us, me, getting right with you, and then me, and then eight and nine, dealing with you, and then 10, 11, and 12, being about God, you, and me. Because even when we look at step 12, it can be broken down into three areas. In my humble opinion, one, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps, we carry the message to, to you, to those who are still suffering, and three, we practice the principles in all our affairs, which is me, God, you, and me. We do it all in step 12. And for me, you know, this idea of a spiritual awakening, I mean, I know it sounds really confusing um, for a newcomer to understand what that was, but for me, it was a process. You know, someone had mentioned earlier today that, you know, the first three steps are about getting right with God. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, that agnosticism played a huge problem for me my first almost five years in Overeaters Anonymous, and it almost killed me. 
because I balked at these steps and I balked at the God thing. And I remember when it finally clicked, when I was dying desperate and doomed by this disease, when someone said to me, I don't care if you think it's Jesus, Buddha, or the universal vibes of a tree as long as you ain't it and it's greater than you. And the disease and the fear of dying from this disease, I can tell you my first spiritual aspect was just getting in the right position with God, which was I wasn't it. And when it came to this disease, I could not fix myself. You know, my ego was not my amigo, and my sick mind could not heal my sick mind. And steps one through three for me were a process of being asked how to do it, and following instructions. That's what it was, just being willing to pull myself aside and follow instructions because I knew that I needed to be restored to sanity or I was going to die of this disease. You know, I came in at 87 finally willing to work this program in its entirety. And I did it at like my life depended upon it. And I followed I followed instructions. And that's what my first, you know, beginning experience, spiritual experience was, if you will. And then I got on to the inventory steps, four through seven. I started working on me and the realization why I ate and why, when it talks about in the big book, the problem centers in my mind, and that why I was sick, why there was so much more to this disease than meets the mouth, so to speak, and that if I didn't change, I was going to eat again. And that the fear, you know, I call it a healthy fear, it propelled me to do the work that was necessary. I didn't want to do it, but I knew that I had to do it. And something happened in that process of going through that, those steps and then beginning the, the, the eight and nine steps of getting relationships with others is that I wanted to change. I was miraculously abstinent because I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. I was praying to God, rowing to shore. I was keeping boundaries around the food. You all were telling me what to do. I was starting to understand who and what I was, self-awareness. What an incredible gift this program has, self-awareness, self-inventory. And then I started to make make amends. And as someone was talking about in step nine, I started to then, in the beginning, for the first time, start to experience a higher power in my life that I started to conceive as a God. Because there were experiences in my ninth step that I could not believe happened that did, that I knew were entirely not of my own making. And, I, and those weren't even all good. I, I learned from those experiences, I'll be honest with you, you know, not every single of my, every step nine experience was a, a wonderful, uh, you know, kumbaya type of experience. I had one experience that where um, my brother, uh, an amends that I made with him, where he didn't talk to me for two years. But in hindsight, I can see how God used that, and it was exactly what needed to happen for me to continue to grow in this program and to let him do what he needed to do. And I had to learn how to detach with love and tolerance and move on. And by then, you know, it talks about in the promises how we will have a new outlook on life. We will have a, you know, we will lose interest in ourselves and gain interest in our others. I, want, I started to see outside of myself. It wasn't all about me, myself, and I anymore. I started to look around to the world around me. I was starting to awaken to a new way of life, a new way of acting and reacting to life. I mean, I had one option to life before I came to program. Anything, happy, angry, lonely, or tired, or whatever, my entire reaction to life and life circumstances was to pick up the food. I was restless, irritable, and discontent by my own making or by circumstances, and my only option was option reduction. Seek the ease and comfort that came 
at once from taking that bite of my binge foods and binge ingredients. And I came now, and I was starting to be equipped. I had a fellowship. I had tools. I had these steps. The whole world opened up, and I wanted to share it with others. And, and that's where this idea of step 10 came about, where I became equipped to live in the day, to live in the present. And then in step 11, for the first time, I sought God. Instead of just experiencing God and starting to believe in God, I sought God. I wanted to know what it was to have a relationship with a higher power because it was bringing me such joy. Talk about a new freedom, a new peace, a new joy, a new happiness. To me, happiness before program was to be granted three wishes. One was to eat whatever I want and not get fat. Two, eat whatever I want and not get fat. Three, third wish, eat whatever I want and not get fat. That was my definition of happiness. Now a whole new world had opened up. I wanted to serve others. I had a purpose. My story, my history of binging and purging, my compulsive overeating history, what it was like, what happened, and what it was like now, had the power to change lives. I could be a message for God in this program, and I wanted to be a part of it. I started to like who I was, and I never dreamed that possible. This is a girl who looked at mirrors and punched the mirrors because she hated the self-loathing, the shame, the hatred, because she hated who she was. This disease kills, was it destroys you in the process of killing you. That's who I was. I was self-centered, selfish. I mean, talk about a personality change that was happening in my life. You know, it talks about it in the AA 12 and 12. And, you know, I will tell you, the big book dedicates an entire chapter to working with others. I mean, even says it on the page 88 on the last chapter, chapter of Into Action. It's in italics. This next chapter is entirely devoted to step 12. And when it gets italics, it means, bam, pay attention, neon lights. This is important. Step 12 is important. And then we go into working with others. It's a great description of how to sponsor, how to look for appropriate sponsees, when to keep them, when to let them go. It's, it's you know, it is incredibly great instruction. And then, you know, 13 years later, we get the AA 12 and 12. And if you want to go even more in depth than the step 12, you can read the 20 pages of that chapter, the longest chapter in the AA 12 and 12 that goes into in depth about it. But if you're looking for a definition, a specific definition for spiritual awakening, it has it right here on page uh, 106 on step 12. It says, there are many definitions of spiritual awakening, but certainly there's one thing in common with all the others. When you skip down, it says, when a man or woman has a spiritual awakening, the most important meaning of it is that he has now become able to do, feel, and believe that which he could not do before on his unaided strength and resources alone. And it goes on to say, in the very real sense, he has been transformed because he has laid hold of a source of strength which he had been hitherto denied himself. And here's what I love so much about this. It says he finds himself in possession of a degree of honesty, tolerance, unselfishness, peace of mind, and love of which he had thought himself quite incapable. And I can tell you for me, I felt completely incapable of any kind of love except for my selfish and self-centered self prior to program. And by step 12, I had become a different person, not cured, but recovered because I was thinking and acting and reacting to life differently. And that was a miraculous transformation. For me, that was an awakening. Was I, do it, was I doing it perfectly? No. But now I had different tools to deal with life on life terms. I had a step 10. 
and I had, you know, maintenance. And, and that, of course, you know, talks about in the big book on page, oh, sorry to talk fast here, uh, page 85, that our recovery is contingent on the maintenance of a spiritual condition. And that maintenance is about prayer and meditation, but a great part about my maintenance is carrying the message to the still-suffering compulsive reader. It says, we talked about it today, faith about works is dead. Part of my faith, part of my maintenance is to carry that message. And there's any number of quotes in the big book that talks about that. On page 89, we can secure their confidence when no one else can. Nothing ensures immunity but working with other alcoholics and compulsive overeaters. Page 97, helping others is the foundation stone of our recovery. You know, uh, page 93, to be vital, faith must be accompanied by self-sacrifice and unselfish constructive action. I do it for me to stay abstinent and to stay recovered and connected to my higher power, and I do it to carry the message. And, you know, just a quick note on sponsorship. I know it's scary when you're new to be a sponsor and when you're newly recovered. And I always was told by my sponsor, and I'll never forget it, which is we don't go this alone. If there is ever a question when you're sponsoring someone that you don't know the answer to, don't wing it. Ask another recovered sponsor. This is where the fellowship comes to the fore. Ask other recovered people how they sponsored. Read the chapter working with others. As a matter of fact, if you're unsure of whether a sponsee and you are going to work out, you go to page 96, and it says right here, find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you have to offer. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. If you leave such a person alone, he may soon become convinced that he cannot recover by himself. To spend too much time on any one situation is to, is to deny some other alcoholic an opportunity to live and be happy. Which again ties into this third part of step 12, which is if I'm sponsoring someone, I better be practicing what I preach, where I practice all these principles in all my affairs. Remember, I'm recovered. I'm not cured, you know? And so... You know, I love sayings, and one of my favorite sayings is, you can only coast downhill. I have to watch for complacency. I've been blessed with a couple of decades, almost three decades of recovery now. But, the, but that doesn't change what it is that I need to do on a daily basis, which is a step zero, keep the boundaries around my food and keep my food plan free of triggered food. And then it's to work my steps, to work my 10, 11, and 12, to carry the message not only does it still suffer in compulsive overeater, but I'm a mother now. I'm a wife now. I have a family now. I have a community. I have friends. You know, I know what true friendship is to be a loyal friend. I have to practice those principles in all my affairs because, you know what, I want to stay liking Amy. Because when I start to hate Amy, then the food's going to come a-calling. And I need to be able to practice those principles. I have to watch for complacency. The big book says that the problem centers in my mind, and oh boy, does it ever. And I need to remember that I work this program by moving forward, by continuing to maintain and growing in my spiritual growth with my higher power and working this program like my life depends upon it and carrying my message to the still-suffering compulsive overeater and practicing these principles to the best of my ability by living steps 10, 11, and 12 in my life. So let me just wrap up by saying these spiritual tendencies in the back also talk about spiritual experience 
And I know for the newcomer out there, it seems like, wow, you know, how, how is this all going to happen? It seems overwhelming. This program does say it's one day at a time. It starts with step one. But it says here, most emphatically, and this is on page 570, most emphatically, okay, we wish to say that any alcoholic, any compulsive overeater capable of being capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can, can, can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated, only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find no, we find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, Honesty and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. And that's all we need to get started on this process. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Amy, for that. And thank you to all our speakers. Contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording. Again, happy anniversary to A Vision for You. You've just heard 12 recovered compulsive overeaters. Each have described in their own personal way how the 12 steps have made a life-changing impact on their minds and hearts, producing a profound and revolutionary change, resulting in a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. 12 voices woven together, a tapestry of transformation, creating a powerful message of hope and possibility. Twelve simple steps which anyone can apply. Yes, that means you too. How free do you want to be? And we'll now have the closing of page 164, read by Julie R. Hi, thank you. This is Julie R., Recovered Compulsive Overeater. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you have found and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.